38 and is teaching you, saying, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like respectful greetings in the marketplaces, those ones that look so impressive. And so therefore, we have a tendency to be drawn into their teaching. Watch out, it's false. Philippians 3, 2, Paul really unmasks the evil of a false teacher by saying it this way, beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision. Hello, and thank you again for joining us today on Grace Maryville Weekly. At the beginning of the week, Pastor Chris started this two-part message on one of the topics that we need for tough times being wisdom. Today, Pastor Chris will complete that message entitled Wisdom, the Essential Discipline. Included in this message on wisdom is a definition of wisdom, the importance of wisdom, the acquiring of wisdom, the exercise of wisdom, and finally, the reward of wisdom. If you would, please join with us by opening your Bibles as we continue to study this topic of wisdom. Wisdom is essential to accomplish God's will. Wisdom is essential to bring God glory. Wisdom is essential then to make Christ look great. That's what we're about, isn't it? The only way God receives glory is if Christ looks great and foolish sinful, immature Christians don't make Christ look great. Some say, well, because of the grace of God, because God has, in, in where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more, then when Christians are foolish and, and ridiculous, well, doesn't that, doesn't that magnify the grace of God? No, certainly the grace of God has overcome our sin. Yes, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more, but not under more sinfulness and more foolishness, but under wisdom. Anyone who would say something like, hey, if Christians are foolish and, and ridiculous and they're not wise, that is what gives God glory. They're dead wrong. What does Paul say in the next verse after, after Romans 5 where he says that where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more? He says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? May it never be. Not a single act of sin ever blamed. Well, that makes God look great because he overcame that sin. No, God is great. He is great to overcome your sin, but that is never the way that Christians view to make God look great. Not by sinning, but by being wise. Christians glorify God by exercising his wisdom. Now, you fail, I know. We, at times, certainly are foolish, and we do sin. And how do we recover then? We glory in the forgiveness granted to us, and we seek that forgiveness in obedience, in wisdom seeking his forgiveness for the foolishness that we so often commit and thanking him for his grace that overcomes our oftentimes foolish actions. Colossians 1.9, in case you were doubting that wisdom is essential to make Christ look great. For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with what? The knowledge of his will in all wisdom and understanding so that, here's the key, why do you need this wisdom and understanding? Why must you be filled with this knowledge of the will of God? So that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. That is the Lord Jesus. When we walk without wisdom, when we do not fulfill the will of God and the principles of the word of God, then we are not walking in a manner that is worthy of our Savior. He died so that we could be wise. He died so that we could be wise and reflect him to a dying, foolish world. And when we live out wisdom, 
we bring increasing glory to God through Christ. So, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. That's the importance of wisdom. It's essential to accomplish God's will. It's essential to bring God glory. It's essential to make Jesus look great, which is the one lifelong eternal goal of every believer. We want Jesus to look unbelievably good, to be the firstborn among many brethren, which he is. All right, and how do we acquire wisdom? So, so I've tried to set the, the groundwork. Definition, why it's so important. I hope probably didn't need to convince you of that, but in our world increasingly, I think it's necessary. How do you get it? This is, these things are gonna be generally basic. I'm gonna work my way through them. Not that they're unimportant, but they're things that you know even more so probably than the things that I've already said. They need to be said, so listen carefully as we work our way towards a practical way to employ wisdom. The barriers to wisdom are what? Sin, of course. And that sin comes in the form of the world, the flesh, and the devil. Hebrews 3.12, take care, brethren, that there not be any one of, in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. The ultimate lack of wisdom is unbelief, not trusting and loving, serving and running for salvation to the God of the universe through Christ. We have to be careful that there's no unbelieving heart left within us. Sin, that sin that remains within will easily deceive us. The enemy within, John Owen called it. 1 Peter 5, 8, be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. 1 John 2, 15 and 16, do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So the world, the flesh, and the devil, everything that is contrary to the will of God saps our wisdom and presents a, an alternate wisdom, a worldly wisdom. It doesn't just come and say, this is foolish idiocy, so do it. It comes and says, the world comes to you and says, no, this is what's really wise. It's really wise to indulge yourself in this way. It's wise to, to live all of your life for this kind of learning. It's wise to live your life to have a, a, a good family only. All these things that the world and the flesh and the devil would say. False teaching, which again is part of this. This is how Satan and his minions fool you and I is through false teaching. That's a barrier to wisdom. Someone constantly teaching what's wrong. Mark 38 in his teaching, he was saying, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in log robes and like respectful greetings in the marketplaces, those ones that look so impressive. And so therefore, we have a tendency to be drawn into their teaching. Watch out, it's false. Philippians 3, 2, Paul really unmasks the evil of a false teacher by saying it this way, beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision. There's ravenous wolves that rip up the people of God with their false teaching when you believe it. So sin, the world, the flesh, and the devil, false teaching. Ignorance is a barrier to wisdom, of course, being unaware of the dangers we face and the truth we need to face them. In Proverbs 1, Solomon giving the ground, laying the groundwork for why he's writing a book on wisdom to, the, to, give, to, the, to give prudence to the naive, those who don't know those who simply have not had the experience in the world to understand its dangers, to know what to do. He says, what Proverbs will do, what wisdom will do is give you prudence, the ability to act wisely, to the youth, knowledge, and discretion. Ignorance is a horrible condition that destroys wisdom, of course, because you don't even know what you're supposed to do. And then there's foolishness. 
foolishness. That is really the setting aside of wisdom for the pursuit of our own desires. Proverbs 14, 16. A wise man is cautious and turns away from evil, but a fool is arrogant and careless. It's the nature of fools. They might even know lots of, know many wise things, and yet they choose to set that aside, acting and living in a particular area like there is no God. Unbelievers are, have this foolishness bound up in everything they do. Unfortunately, believers sometimes draw that kind of foolishness back in by refusing to acknowledge God and live for him in a particular situation. So those are the barriers to it. Uh, how do you pursue it? Again, every characteristic I've talked about so far, contentment and courage and every other one I would talk about is all bound up or begins with spiritual discipline. You will never be able to escape the reality that the Spirit of God empowers you to work with your hands and your mind and your will and your affections to accomplish His work. All His power, your effort, that is that you are using your body and your resources, and then all His credit and all the results are His. But our work is the essential component in partnering with Him to accomplish that. 1 Timothy 4, 7. Have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. For bodily discipline is only of little profit. Godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds promise both for the present life and the life to come. You're familiar with that verse. But you can do all kinds of worldly things. You can learn and you can go to the gym and you can do all these things that seem to be gaining you a, a benefit because you're disciplining yourself in a physical or worldly sense, but only spiritual discipline is the value for eternity because the Spirit of God uses it in an eternal way. And of course, you know what those are. There's the Word of God. It's already said, Psalm 119.9, how can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your Word. To hear, to read, to study, to memorize, to hear the Word preached, and then to meditate, as Rob already talked about tonight, to chew it over, to think about it, to understand it, and, and think deeply. So not just to think deeply, whoa, I know, you know this deep theology. We spent an hour today in our student leadership working our way through one chapter of J.I. Packer's book, Knowing God, is a, is a chapter on propitiation. The nature, the importance of understanding that Christ's sacrifice was not only a sacrifice that removed the results of sin, but took the penalty, took the wrath of God against sin. And we delve deep so that we might be able to put those principles into practice into greater love of Christ and, uh, and a deeper, more solid grounding in the truths of the gospel so that we can live for him. The word of God, prayer, prayer. We are to be alert at all times with perseverance and petition, says Ephesians 6.18. Seeking the Lord as in, 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 with discipline, worship, prayer. Uh, the word prayer, worship. If you cut yourself off from the body of Christ, cut yourself off from a regular pursuit of God and in, in prayer, in thanksgiving, in honoring him for who he is and what he's done and coming together with the body and worshiping together with other believers. Again, the, the grievous nature of not being able to worship with you and coming and singing, which, which I love and enjoying the, the time, but not being able to, to, to participate with you in the worship of the Lord. That's essential for us and we won't survive long without it. And we look to the day as soon as possible when corporately we come back together because it guards us from sin. It helps us become wise because we come, we reorient our life, which is so much, so often spent on our own or just with our family or with unbelievers. And we come together with other believers and we go, oh, that's what life looks like. That's wisdom when we worship together. Essential discipline, individual and corporate worship, and then discipleship. 
Spending time with other believers for the direct purpose of spiritual growth and accountability. You got to have that at one level or another. Or you're seeking other people out. They're pouring into your life. They're holding you accountable. Are you actually doing that? Imparting truth to you and then seeing that you actually know it, understand it, and are able to impart it to others as you live it out. So in order to gain wisdom, we have to overcome the barriers. We're going to acquire wisdom. The pursuit of it is through spiritual discipline, the word and prayer and discipleship. But then as I've already said, it is through careful practice. We acquire wisdom, not by simply knowing facts, but by putting those truths into practice over and over and getting better and better at living them out. When You may not believe this, but when I was in college, I was actually there for computer science and applied math. That was my undergrad. I never really touched a computer before I went to college, but decided that was a f- safe place to run because I, I started out in sociology thinking, I want to be a youth pastor, so I'll, I'll learn about humans' problems. Well, it doesn't work very well from a human standpoint. So I did like three days of one class of sociology, and I ran to the computer and math department because I was like, at least that's safe. Well, in with a computer program, you, get, you start with a, you have a particular project that you're given, and you have all the tools that you know, and it, essentially it's like, look, here's the end product. You've got to get this. You have to use this particular computer language. We had such things back then, right? You could use like Fortran and uh, all, the, all these weird languages, basic and other things. And so you've so you got to pick the language, and then you have to put all, use all the tools and put together the process by which you'll get that end answer. And for each individual programmer, there was some difference in it. There was some variation. Why? Because each one put those tools together a little bit differently. So you did it the first time. You tried to, you know, you, you crunched all the numbers into the program with all the stuff you had. And, of course, for me, every time the first time, it what, blew, blew up. It never got past, you know, like, like line two of code. And all of a sudden, I'm on this infinite loop or the screen would, everything would disappear off the screen. So you go back through and what do you do? You try it again and you look to where you see where you, mis- where you made a mistake. You write a new line of code. You see how that will work. Well, then you do it again and you keep working your way through the process. It's incredibly intensive. There's nothing like computer programming. You can, I, I, there was nothing like it to stay up all night. Literally a night, two nights, two days, you, you could stay crunching away at this code because it was engaging your mind at that level. Well, that's what we need for wisdom. It has to be continually put into practice. You can't just kick it in there and you know, say, here are the principles and we'll just throw that into life and it'll come out with a perfect result. It won't. You're gonna have to work on it and get a little further and a little better. You're gonna get a little better at your marriage, a little more wise as a student, a little, uh, gaining greater wisdom as a, as a husband or wife, as a brother or sister, as a church member. Hebrews 5.14, again, solid food is for the mature who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. It's not a superpower. It's learning to exercise the Holy Spirit's gifts and abilities to understand, practice, evaluate, repent, correct, train, persevere. That's how wisdom is gained, through careful practice. And so we want to do that. Well, how do we exercise this then? Right? So moving our way ever increasingly practical. So you got to practice it. How do you do that? The exercise of wisdom. I finished up the message uh, last week on Courage. And we're driving in the car, and Joanna and I decided that we wanted to go to uh, Chick-fil-A and, and get, get some fries of all things. And little did we know we'd have to sit there for like 45 minutes to get two fries. So our order kept increasing. It got bigger and bigger. If we're going to wait here for 40 minutes, we're going to order more. So I think we ended up with a shake and two fries and a bunch of stuff by the time we were done. That's not the point of the story. We're driving there, and she turns and looks at me. I said, well, you know, what, what do you think about the message? And she's like, no, I don't even think I've asked her. She said, Dad, are, are you going to teach us how to do all that stuff you said? I was like, oh, 
guess I better, guess I better do that. I guess, I guess I better do some teaching on how you do all this stuff. So, Joanna, this is for you. <laughs> all right, how do you do this? One, be, be watchful and alert. How are you going to exercise this wisdom? We're going to get increasingly specific. I got 15 minutes, and we are going to get really specific. Here we go. It's on this outline. You're going to need to get it again, but I want to go over it with you because some of these things perhaps are things you haven't thought about. Probably everything else for many of you that I've taught tonight, you've gone, Chris, we already knew that or we were aware of that. Thanks for the reminder. Okay, let's get real specific. If you're going to exercise wisdom, you have to be alert to the circumstances around you spiritually so that you aren't caught unaware by dangers and you are able to take hold of opportunity. Drowsy, apathetic people aren't wise. You fall asleep in class, you don't learn the information. You fall asleep when you're trying to climb a mountain and you fall off. Sleepy, lazy people aren't wise. 1 Corinthians 16, 13, be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. This is, most of us fail out the gate at this. You wake up in the morning, you weren't alert to what the dangers that you face. You didn't even think about it. Every day you commit the same sin and you don't grow in your love for your sisters and your brothers. You don't grow in your, in your, in your honor and, and love of your parents because you forget each day that you're bad at that and you don't practice. You have to be alert. You have to wake up aware. Lord, help me be aware of the dangers I face. It's, it's the Lord's prayer or the disciples, the Lord's prayer for the disciples to pray, which was lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. It's being aware, being alert to those things and then living wisely. Know the circumstances. So be watchful and alert of what? Of the circumstances around you, what's going on in a particular thing. Are you trying to decide? Should I get together with my group of 15 when we have a, a you know, limit of 10 that has been suggested to us by the government? You're going to need some wisdom. What do you do? What are the circumstances? What are the facts? What did the governor actually say? What do, what, what do the circumstances warrant? You're going to have to discern the facts and consider the circumstances that are actually happening, the things that are real and true that are going on in your life. My you know, husband or wife is doing this and they're involved in these things. My siblings are like this. They're saying this and doing this. Actual specific circumstances. I want to go to this school. This school costs this much. It's in this place. I have this much and I have this kind of car. All of these things. Discern the facts and consider the consequences. Ephesians 5, 6 says, walk as children of light, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Don't participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead expose them. Know what's unfruitful. Know the deeds of darkness. Expose those and pursue what is right and good. You are going to have to know the circumstances. But here's the thing I think many of you don't do. Many of us don't do. You're going to have to know your own inner man. That, what I mean by that is this. You know a lot of principles but we rarely take time to carefully analyze our own inner man according to biblical principles, and it is here where we fail in wisdom. So what do I mean? You're going to have to discern your motives and affections. Now, I understand that you don't fully know your own motives, and you don't fully discern your own affections. I get that, but increasingly you pray, God, reveal wicked ways in me. God, show me the things in me that desire what is right and good. Help me know what is motivating me here so that I can more wisely pursue the thing that you want. Now, Scripture reveals to us motives. Genesis 3, 6 says, When the woman saw that the tree was, listen to these words, it's good for food. So what's her, what's her first motive? I'm hungry. I like good food, and this is good for food. It was a delight to the eyes. She liked good things. She liked to look at things that were beautiful, so she was motivated by beauty. It was desirable to make one wise. She wanted to be wise, motivated to gain greater wisdom. 
And so she took from it and ate. So her motives are exposed. These are things that Eve would have been aware of as well, not fully, completely, but she would know what motivated her and she allowed her motivations to overcome her and to be directed sinfully. So we need to discern our motives. John 15, 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish will be done for you. What does it mean? That you begin to know your own motives. You have a, a certain insight in your own heart through the truth of the word of God. Do you even know what motivates you? Do you know why you are doing what you are doing? Do you know what affections you actually have? You can scripturally begin to understand those as you pray, seek the Lord, look into the principles of his word, and think through what you are what, what your affections are and your motives are. You have to determine your own thoughts, discern your own thoughts. See, I'll talk to people and say, oh, I didn't think about that. Yes, you did. They'll do something foolish. So I just didn't think. You did think because your body doesn't work if you don't think. You have to think something or the brain doesn't put into practice that you know, ball you flew through the window or you drove and you ran out of gas. My son ran out of gas one time. What's that? Why'd you run out of gas? I wasn't paying attention. Well, that's true. Right? I wasn't thinking. Well, no, you were thinking. You were just thinking about the wrong thing. You weren't paying attention to what you needed to. You have to know what you're thinking. What are you thinking right now? Are those godly thoughts? Are those true thoughts? Are you assuming things that you shouldn't? Are you believing things that are false? In your thinking, you have to know. That's why scripture can command you to think certain things because you have the ability to know what you're actually thinking. Philippians 4.8, finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there's any excellence, and if anything worthy of praise, think on these things. So you have the power to do them. But so many times, you are thoughts, you don't even analyze them. And so you had this thought that it would be okay for you to say this, this disrespectful word to your parents, and you said it. Well, what were you thinking? You were thinking that that was okay. It's not okay. Or you were thinking, I know it's not okay, but my situation demands that I'm able to say it. That's wrong thinking. You need to know ahead of time that that thinking was wrong. Challenge your own thinking and not let the word come out of your mouth. Not make the unwise decisions. And you have to be able to do that in the moment and continually. Always bringing to bear that filter of what is right and good. You have to know your motives and your affections. You have to discern your thoughts. What are you thinking? And change your thinking. It's called taking your thoughts captive, 2 Corinthians 10.5. You have to know your attitudes. That is, how are you thinking about a person? What kind of attitude do you, do you have towards them? You have to discern, is that the right attitude? Someone walks into the room, instant disdain. Disdain's an attitude, right? I do, I cannot stand the person. It's bound up in thinking. It has to do with motives and affections. But you need to recognize instantly that that attitude towards that person is wrong and you're gonna have to put on a different attitude but you're going to have to know that you actually have that. I'll talk to people. Oh, no, I don't disdain that person. Really? I mean, you talk to them like this. I'm not unforgiving. I don't have bitterness towards that person, right? That's, that's an attitude. I'm not bitter. Really? The words that you said just now don't reflect bitterness. Can we go through those again? You don't know your own heart well. You, need, you can, by the power of the word of God and the spirit of God, have certain insight in your own heart, and you have to. What are your attitudes? And then you have to learn to change them. Paul in Philippians 4, he says, I've learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He learned the secret of his attitude towards his things that went, when they went well and when they went poorly. He knew what that was. He knew his motivations. He knew his thinking. He knew his attitudes by the power of God. And so he could direct his actions properly. You have to discern your emotions. You might think, well, that one's easy. I mean, I just have these emotions. No, you have to know what's bottled up inside. 
And you have to determine whether those emotions are appropriate. You always need to ask this question, not just simply, how am I feeling? That's important. But should I be feeling this way? If you're sad, should you be sad? If you see someone, you know, strike someone in the middle of the street and they're, they're harmed, you ought to be sad about that. If you have delight that rises up in your heart when something like that happens, that's a wrong emotion, right? And you have to take that emotion and say, that's wrong. I should not be having that emotion. If you're weeping and crying and wailing when your parents give you a simple command to accomplish something, that's, that's a wrong emotion. You shouldn't be weeping over that. You shouldn't be angry and bitter over the fact that they gave you something to do. You need to change your emotions. How do you do that? Well, you can't just turn them into something else. You have to say, Lord, that's a wrong emotion. I, I can't change the exactly the way I feel right now, but I know from your word that I should be joyful in this situation, and so help me to direct my thinking and my affections and my will so that my emotions will eventually change. Guys, that's the kind of thing that gives wisdom, and your emotions drive most of what you do. You have to recognize them, say that's a right or wrong emotion. If it's a right emotion, you know, you, you're in, in a worship service and you're loving to sing to the Lord, you think that's a right emotion. Let's, let's amplify that one. Great. You're properly, wisely acting according to a right emotion. And then, so important, you have to cultivate your conscience. You have to know how your conscience is weighing in on any particular thing you are thinking. You see, your conscience weighs in, that is, it passes a judgment on your motives, on your thinking, on your emotions, and on your attitude. Your conscience knows all of those things. And it's a part of your inner man. It's not the Holy Spirit. They're not the same. Romans 2.14 says, When the Gentiles do not have the law, and when they do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves. Here, here's what that means. In that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. The conscience goes off, says, that's a wrong thought. Then they think, oh, that was a wrong thought. And then they learn how to change it. Their conscience is like the dash light, the warning light on the dashboard that says that's wrong, whether it's an emo anything that's going on in your inner man. And so whenever you're making a decision or wherever you're trying to decide, should I do this? You ought to be sensitive to your conscience. Is your conscience light going off as in that's wrong or is it giving you the green light? That's right, because it operates both ways, as a warning light and as a go light. And you need to know and understand your conscience. Now, I understand there's a lot involved here, but maybe this will just get you moving down the path of understanding that you can't just blunder into a situation with a bunch of principles you know and then come out on the other end having failed miserably and go, why did that happen? And you didn't think about what you thought. You didn't consider your conscience. You didn't know your motivations. You weren't aware of your attitudes and you didn't control your emotions. All of those are possible. All of that is possible by the power of the Spirit of God employing the principles of the Word of God. And then you can act wisely. But most people don't know what they're thinking. They don't know why they're motivated the way they are. They don't take their emotions uh, in, in hand. They just let themselves emote. They don't know what their conscience is doing and they don't know how to calibrate their conscience according to the principles of the Word of God. Number four, in this process, as you are being alert, as you are knowing the circumstances, as you know your inner man, you are then considering your priorities. That is, what are your rules? Because see, any decision, if it's going to be wise, has to be balanced with all the other decisions you're supposed to make. So as your friend says, hey, I would like you to come, or I, you know, can we hop on the computer since we can't go anywhere right now, and I'd like you to play two hours of Age of Empires with me. And you have a decision to make. Would it be wise for me to do that? Well, maybe. You have nothing else to do that night. 
you tomorrow morning you don't have any school and Age of Empires is, you know, you're gonna, it's a game that doesn't have overtly sinful things in it. So you go, okay, my priority, right? My priorities as a, as a, say you're a, a daughter, my priorities as a daughter are, I have to obey my parents, but they don't, it's okay for them. I went and asked them, they said it was all right. Uh, my priorities as a student say that I need to make sure I get enough sleep and I don't have school tomorrow and on and on. My priorities as a brother or sister, my sisters have just, you know, I just did something with them yesterday or the, even today and enjoyed time with them. So now I have some time that probably would, could be worthwhile we spent just myself and this friend. You see, there's so many priorities that have to do with your roles. Let me just mention some of the roles you have that you have to think through as to whether or not a decision is wise if it enables you to fulfill those roles in a biblical manner. There's a personal role, personal devotion to God. There's the role you have in your family, husband or wife, son or daughter, sibling, sister or brother. There's the role you have in the church. How are you exercising your gifts? Notice I didn't say whether you're a child or an adult. If you're a Christian, your role in the church is, how am I going to exercise my gifts? You have a role towards your friends, sharing the gospel and loving them and caring for them and, and, and encouraging them and counseling them. You have a role at school or your job or both. How am I an employee? How am I a good student? You have a role in society underneath the government. How am I responding to the government? How am I responding to those in society that have need? How am I responding in such a way that I live responsibly? And you have a role in the world. How am I thinking about missions? How am I thinking about ways the world is impacted? Because that's pretty complex. And you're going to have to think through your set of priorities in order to make wise decisions. And ever increasingly, as you take on more roles and, and grow older, that's why, unfortunately, teenagers who don't think about this stuff end up making disastrous decisions about who they're going to marry and what they're going to do because they didn't think through their roles. They didn't apply carefully biblical wisdom, and they kept living like they were 10 years old. And they could just run around with their emotions and do whatever they wanted to do, and there weren't any consequences for that sort of thing. You have to think through what roles you have. Because you need to write that down. Ministries. Here are my roles. Here are the biblical priorities that I have. You don't invent those. The Bible tells you how you be a citizen. And then you put the principles into practice. And then you're going to have to, so you have to know your roles that determine your priorities in any given decision. And then you're going to have to maximize your time. Ephesians 5.15. Be careful how you walk. Not as unwise men, but as wise. Making the most of your time because the days are evil. Got to make the, the Bible commands you to make the most of your time. So to make a wise decision, it means it's the best use of your time right then. How do you do that? A couple thoughts. You number your days. Psalm ninety twelve that we taught on Sunday. What does that mean? The psalmist says, "Teach us to number our days, so that we may present to you a heart of wisdom." It means recognize that your time is short, that you only have a very short period of time on this earth in comparison with eternity to accomplish God's tasks, and so you those need to be your highest priority. And so you have to remember, I'm, I'm going to die someday. Man, you're, you know, 15 year old, you're going, years old, you're going, Chris, I'm, I'm never going to die. You are. If it's 70 years, 60 years, you still are. It might seem like the world to you, but it isn't. You need to be living your life now in light of the end of your life and the beginning of eternity. And by the way, you could die tomorrow. You could die in a moment. Life is a vapor. It's a breath. But even if you live long, yes, as a 15-year-old, 16-year-old, 30-year-old, 80-year-old, number your days. And then develop priorities around that. Number your days, develop your priorities on the basis of, is this the best use of time? Not even is this a good use of time, is it the best one? And I do believe, by the way, that playing a fun video game with your family can be the best use of an hour. I believe that to be true because I do it. I'm not saying it 
justify doing it makes it true, but I wouldn't do it if I didn't think it could be the best use of my time at some given time. In fact, I'll go so far as to say is that I think the best use of a couple of hours of our time this weekend was to learn how to do the Cotton Eye Joe. Now, some of you are going to go ballistic on that. You might think, I think that was the best use of our time. I think it was a wise, godly use of time. And so that's why we did it. Otherwise, we wouldn't have done it. So it goes down to things that are all, I'm not just talking about, am I going to be a missionary? Am I going to read the Bible eight hours a day? Everything needs to be considered. Is that a wise use of time? And for this moment, this time, these priorities, is it most wise? Number your days, develop your priorities, analyze your time. A lot of you think you use your time well, but you don't actually. If you need to, write it down in 15-minute increments all throughout the next week and see how you actually use your time. Is it wisely spent? Analyze your time. And then plan a schedule. Yep, you need a schedule. Like, oh, I don't do schedules. I'm just kind of a freewheeling kind of guy. Then you're not going to use your time wisely. There's some guys that don't write a schedule down and have a day timer and 15 you know, different you know, apps. And they're very, very scheduled. And a lot of times, you don't have to have a list. You just know, this is what I do throughout the day. It's carefully worked out so I know this is the right time to do these things. Yes, as a 16-year-old. Yes, as an 18-year-old. You can't be wise if you don't have some kind of plan for your time. You need a schedule where you are acting, in many cases, unwisely. Then seek accountability and counsel. Seek accountability and counsel. Have someone look into your life. Here's my priorities. Here's the things I think these are my roles, and here's what I, I'm seeking to do, and here's my schedule, and would you hold me accountable daily as to whether or not I'm actually doing this? And help me see the errors. You know, your parents are doing that whether you want it or not, right? They're telling you, you should have cleaned your room, you should have studied this, you should have gone here, you shouldn't have done this, and oftentimes you fight them. Instead of fighting them, you ought to say, Mom, Dad, yeah, please help me use my time wise. I don't feel like I'm doing that well. Would you present to me your ideas? What do you think? As you grow older, you'll develop your own things. But you have people that are holding you accountable. Your friends can hold you accountable. Help me, help me know if, I, if you think I'm not doing something wisely. Now, if you have, if you have your outline, there's, I, I then put those basic principles, those first five basic principles, into a very specific 20-step process for considering whether you're making a wise decision. Now, please understand. All there's different steps in that. Some some you're only going to get through three of those. Biblical principle says, "Thou shalt obey your parents." Your decision is ended. So not wise. Not, you do it, and you, you do it with a good attitude because the Bible says you're supposed to be joyful. Some of them are much more complex. I hope that will help you. And these things you learn, some of them you do in 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 30 seconds, all the way through. Some of it will take you days or months to try to work out what the Lord would have. But it all fits within the biblical principles that we've discussed. You have to take time to be wise. However you work your decisions, you should at the end of them be able to say, here's how I made that decision, and that's why I know it's wise. And if your parents were to sit down and say, hey, why are you doing this? And why are you going here? And why are you accomplishing this? You ought to be able to say, because I think that's biblical wisdom, and here's why. And then allow their input on that. I'm just going to read the list of rewards. I don't have time to go, in, go into them, but I, I think they probably speak for themselves. So you think, well, why do I need wisdom? Why do I need to take all that time, Chris? Well, as I've already said, it's the only way to glorify God, accomplish his will, make Christ look great. But here are the rewards for you. Wisdom brings life and peace. In this world, even when you're wrestling and struggling through a coronavirus or other things, it brings a, a, a sense of the fullness of life and a peace in your relationship with the Lord that nothing else can bring. Unwise people are fearful, anxious, and foolish in these days. 
life and peace. Favor and good repute or good reputation. Now, the world might not like your reputation, but I'll bet you you could sit down and list me five people that you know that are spiritually wise and everybody else knows it too. I'll bet you could do that. Favor and good repute come with the living of wisdom. I'll bet your friends know if you have a reputation for being wise or foolish. I bet they know you probably should ask them. Straight paths, that you're able to walk in ways that don't lead you down dark corridors that kill you and harm you and harm your family and harm your future family. Straight paths and honor the Lord. That's what you get when you live with wisdom. Healing and refreshment. Not necessarily physical healing, but, but a life that is full of, of a joyful experience of what the Lord would have. Even in the midst of pain and difficulty and heartache and boredom, there's a refreshment the believer has, a healing that comes to him in, in day by day, and then one that leads ultimately to the eternal rest and healing of heaven. Plentiful resources. I love this. The more wise you are, the more resources you have. Why? Because you're taking hold of the spiritual bounty that the Lord has provided when you are wise. And choosing wisdom means that you get, the, the benefit of it is that you get lots of loving reproof. And it is a reproof that enables you to grow in wisdom. And so a wise man draws out the loving reproof of others so that his life is lived in a greater accordance to the word of God. So what do I long for you? What is my prayer for you tonight? That you would live in a way that makes Jesus look great because you've taken hold of the power of the Holy Spirit on the basis of a true fear of the Lord to skillfully and consistently apply the principles of the word of God in a way or in a manner that enables you to demonstrate his greatness. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time. Thank you for wisdom that you have given to us, this spiritual discipline that you have granted us the privilege of taking hold of. And I pray that our young people would grow increasingly wise, that our elderly would live lives that express not just worldly wisdom, but, but are full of the fruit of spiritual wisdom and that our entire church would, would exercise the fullness of, of the beauty of this wisdom that the world would look and see the, the one from whom that wisdom flows, our Lord Jesus Christ, and see his beauty, his power, and his wisdom. In your precious name, Lord Jesus, amen. Thank you for joining us again on Grace Maryville Weekly. These messages are just a small collection of sermons that have been presented at Grace Community Church in Maryville, Tennessee. If you would like to learn more about Grace Community Church, where Pastor Chris serves as an elder and pastor, please visit us online at gracemaryville.org. Again, that's gracemaryville.org. There, not only will you be able to find out more about the many ministries at Grace Community Church, but you will also be able to access a full audio archive of messages, not only presented by Presta Chris, but also messages presented to our women's ministry, our youth ministry, and our college-age ministry. We invite you to visit us online, and we hope that you will join us again on Monday when we will begin another series of messages from God's Word.